You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 28. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky, and that was our special Vaquita theme song from Ben Mirren, which is replacing our standard theme this month. Today on the show, we're talking with Dr. Barbara Taylor, who has been working with the Vaquita porpoise for over 30 years and has probably seen more Vaquita in the wild than anyone else on the planet. Barbara specializes in population genetics, but her research on the vaquita covers a broad range of topics, and she talks a lot about the social sciences in this episode and the need to eliminate fishing with gillnets if we are to save the vaquita. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this interview, but one of the most fascinating things that Barbara shared with me was how surprised she was to learn that vaquita populations were declining so rapidly. We'll talk a lot about the acoustic monitoring program in this interview, and although I was aware of this project, I didn't realize that without it, we never would have known the impact that the Tatuaba fishery is having on the vaquita. Lucky for us, Souls of the Vermilion Sea director, Sean Bogle, recently had the opportunity to go out with the crew in Mexico and get footage of the deployment of new underwater microphones for this acoustic monitoring program. Uh, we'll link to his recent blog article about this experience in the show notes. And we are also extremely lucky to have two unique Vaquita prints created by Barbara Taylor herself, which we've just added as a new reward level to our Kickstarter campaign. That's right. Barbara is also a very talented artist um, and has been creating Vaquita-themed artwork and paintings for many years. So if you're interested in checking out some of Barbara's Vaquita art and maybe even grabbing one of those unique prints for yourself, be sure to check out our Kickstarter campaign for Souls of the Vermilion Sea. You can find the link to our campaign on the show notes page for this episode, which are at wildlensinc.org eoc28. All right, let's jump into this interview with full-time Vaquita expert and part-time artist, Barbara Taylor. All right, I am here with Dr. Barbara Taylor, who leads the Marine Mammal Genetics Program for the Southwest Fisheries Science Center, which is a part of NOAA Fisheries. Uh, how, how are you doing today, Barbara? I'm doing just great, other than uh, being very worried about my pet species. Understandably so, understandably so. Um, well, I'm going to start things off here uh, just by getting a little bit of background from you. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how you first got involved in marine mammal research and conservation. I started doing marine mammal research as an undergraduate back in the last century in the 1980s, looking at how pollutants affected harbor seal uh their ability to survive and give birth up in Washington State, and I've been doing it ever since, so it's been over 30 years. Was there a, a certain incident that happened back in your undergraduate days that sort of pushed you in, in that direction towards this focus on marine mammals? I think my first interest in marine mammals actually came from hearing songs of the humpbacked whale. And I was sort of hooked and I saw an ad that was for this harbor seal study and linked up with a really great group of people who I still work with today. And uh, then I had some very, I'd say, inspirational early research projects early in my career, I think, that gave me the level of optimism that you need to stick with conservation biology, which sometimes can test your mettle. Yeah, that is certainly true, for sure. Um, so do, do you remember first learning about the vaquita and the conservation issues that, that this species is dealing with? I do. I, I actually wrote a chapter of my PhD thesis on, it was a paper called, you know, why we must monitor spotted owls and vaquita. And I hadn't seen either one of them at the time. And there was a paper that came out that basically said, 
well, you can't really tell that spotted owls are declining, and so we can't worry about it until you can prove that they are. And it was when I got into basically the philosophy of science and conservation saying, if you wait until you have absolute proof before you take action, you're going to lose a lot of species. For example, here's this little vaquita in, in Mexico that, you know, it, it's very hard to, to tell how many are out there. And so you have to work with the best available science and not require the, you know, very high levels of proof or you're going to lose these species. And it's funny, I mean, you know, now 30 years later, it's basically I'm saying the same thing and it's more true now today than it was then. So uh, it's it's been a, a, a long, hard battle to to try to get scientists to recognize that for certain species that are naturally difficult to study, uh, you have to, if you really believe in managing them and in conservation, you have to have different standards than you do for a typical science project. Yeah, that, that is a fascinating perspective that you have on this. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to me that your sort of first, uh, I, I guess your first involvement in Vaquita was through this lens of the philosophy of science um, and, and this idea of, you know, why we should work to protect these uh, these species, even if, uh, you know, the science, you know, uh, isn't definitive um, as to whether or not populations are declining. Um, so what, what was the next step? You know, how, how did you go from, you know, this sort of uh, philosophical, you know, sort of uh, uh, thought experiment involving Vaquita towards, you know, being directly involved in... in uh, conservation of the species? Well, as many things happen, uh, a researcher walked in my door one day named Lorenzo Rojas Bracho. In fact, I just got back from lunch with him. I've been working with him for 25 years now, and he was asking questions about whether or not we could use genetics to understand the population biology of the species. And I was doing a lot of population modeling. And so he and I collaborated. He worked on the genetic side and I worked on the modeling side. And what we found was is that, that this was a species that has probably always been naturally rare. It doesn't have genetic variability, but it probably didn't lose it in recent times um, when the population declined because of fishing. So we started working together then. And then because our center here uh, does some of the biggest marine mammal ship surveys in the world. Um, we collaborated together on the first ever abundance estimate for vaquitas in 1997. And I've been on the recovery team. And so I've probably seen as many or more vaquita than just about anybody in the world at this point. So you mentioned that you've been, it's, it's been roughly 25 years since you uh, started working directly with, with the vaquita and, and looking at population genetics um, with this species. Um, I guess I'm wondering what the vaquita population looked like then as compared to now. I mean, how, how different was it? And, you know, uh, through the lens of, you know, your focus in this issue, which is population genetics. Well, I actually have multiple interests, but population genetics is one of them. And it hasn't been, I think, uh, the most important tool in terms of understanding the population dynamics of vaquitas. Um, we found out basically that they lacked genetic diversity in a a genetic marker that we commonly use for marine mammals to tell, you know, populations apart from one another and to be able to identify individuals. I mean, basically, you've met one vaquita, you've met them all. They all have the same last name, more or less. So that didn't really give us uh, much of a tool in terms of understanding the population dynamics of vaquita at the time. Interestingly, um, we started looking at genetics again. Just uh, There's a project that we just started up a couple of months ago. Our samples are now, uh, I think our most recent samples, like 22 years old. Um, but now we have a totally different set of tools in our toolbox. Um, and we're going to be able to take a look at a, a lot more parts of the genome that we 
were able to 25 years ago. But still, all in all, the most important things about Paquita are, are not their genetics, but rather what's happening to their uh, population as a result of basically drowning in artisanal fishing nets. And that that's another part of, of what I do. I, I As I said, I, I came in through the modeling side more than the genetic side. And so we were looking at the population dynamics, you know, what their birth rates and death rates were, how fast can the population grow. And right from the very beginning, uh, there were questions about whether this population that wasn't only described a little over 50 years ago by scientists was and seemed to be naturally rare and was found in fishing dumps uh, where it was being discarded as, you know, bycatch, things that are accidentally caught in fishing nets as to whether that was sustainable or not. And we needed to pull together several pieces of data to be able to assess the risk to the species. And that's the other thing that I have concentrated my career on is, is risk assessment for endangered species. And so we, it's, it's pretty straightforward, actually, with vaquitas because we, in the early days, had quite a, a large number of animals that were turned in by fishermen and were able to get the basic stuff that biologists get to look at birth rates and death rates. And of course, we know a lot about porpoises elsewhere in the world. And so it was very uh, simple arithmetic to figure out that more animals were being killed than the population could produce, and that they lived only in this really tiny part of the world. And uh, the people that lived nearby primarily lived by means of fishing. And so the, the conflict there was uh, very apparent very early on, and there's been very consistent advice uh, from the scientific side uh, that basically vaquitas and gillnets are incompatible. You can't have them both um, for this entire period. Population estimates for vaquita is, I mean, it, we're, we're at less than 100 individuals in, in the population. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, uh, maybe I should ask you, like, what, what were those population uh, estimates uh, back in the 90s when you started working with Fakita? So the first full abundance estimate was done in 1997, and there were somewhere over 600 of them. Uh, and then we came back in 2008 and did another big survey, um, and there were around 250 of them. So we'd lost well over half of the species at that point. Um, and we had gotten to the point where the typical ways that we monitor animals was no longer possible. They'd become too rare. So we typically go out with a big ship and we uh, use these enormous 25 power binoculars uh, to be able to look out and find these animals. They're really, really hard to see. Um, and you need a certain number of sightings to be able to get a, a good, precise abundance estimate. And we simply were getting lower and lower, and these surveys are very expensive. And uh, I had just returned from a really horrible experience in China where we went out on a survey to find the last of the Baiji, which is the Yangtze River dolphin, um, to take them into captivity because at that point it was very clear that they were going to go extinct unless they were taken out of their natural habitat. And it was too late. They were gone, you know, and I, I had to be a first-hand witness to uh, an extinction of a species that has been on planet Earth for well over 20 million years. And that made me redouble my efforts and um, interest in actually seeing something done to try to save Vaquita before it was too late. And we had to learn from those lessons. And one of the lessons that we... Uh, learned from the Baiji was that if you take your eye off the ball with these small populations, they can go extinct a lot faster than you would realize. And you need to, to keep 
the conservation biologists need to keep their thumb on the pulse of what's going on. And it can't just happen every 10 years, which is basically what the ship surveys were doing. And so we, uh, in that 2008 survey, developed another method to be able to monitor this population more closely and on an annual basis. And so we uh, tested a bunch of acoustic devices and went to passive acoustic monitoring as a way to tell how many vaquitas are out there. And in a nutshell, um, it makes the assumption that because these vaquitas are out there uh, using echolocation to find their food, that if you have half as many clicks, you have half as many vaquitas. So you can't use it to actually estimate the number, but you can use it to follow the trends. And that, of course, is very important. So that's what's clued us into the really uh, dire situation that has come to pass in the last few years. So it, it seems to me like there's sort of two factors at, at, at play here um, that that make a program like this, like this acoustic monitoring program, um, to, to sort of determine uh, the, where the population is at necessary. I mean, one is sort of the naturally small population size, um, you know, just sort of the starting point for this population. Um, but I mean, the, the, the vaquita is also just sort of a naturally elusive species. I mean, d does that seem like a, an, an accurate sort of depiction of, of this animal? Um, if so, I mean, how do you go about learning just basic natural history, uh, and, and sort of behavioral information, uh, about this animal when the only way you can sort of collect data on them is through these remote monitoring program? Well, there's no doubt that they're not the easiest species to study. I mean, it would be much easier if they were like bottlenose dolphins and they were much more conspicuous and more easily accessible. They didn't basically shy away from boats and make it difficult to, you know, find them. Um, but that is not an insurmountable problem. I mean, I think we have very successfully gotten around that by figuring out that, okay, these animals live relatively far from shore, but they also live in shallow waters. And so we can put these devices called sea pods down there that can listen to them. And, and really that's the easiest way to detect them because they're acoustic animals. They live in muddy waters. They use sound to find their food. And, and that's the way that they're more apparent. Even though we're visual animals, they're acoustic animals. And so, you know, we can take advantage of that and still learn a lot about them through these acoustic signals. And we can leave these things out there for months. So we have a grid of about 50 of these the sea uh, pods out there. Um, that covers roughly half of the distribution of the area of the highest density where vaquitas live. And we get over 3,000 days of data a year. So it's, it's not a trivial amount of data that we can collect on these uh, little animals. Of course, we, we wish that we could you know, do things that you can do on other animals, like, you know, learn about individuals with photo ID or put cool tags on them and learn, you know, more about their daily lives. But when it comes to conservation, we think that we're getting the most important thing, and that is where are they spending their time and what's happening to their trends in abundance. Is there anything surprising that you've learned about Vikita uh, through this acoustic monitoring program? Well, I have to say, sadly, the most surprising thing is that they're rapidly going extinct. I mean, that was a t complete and total surprise. You know, we actually put the acoustic monitoring in place at the uh, request of the government of Mexico because they had put in a marine reserve that protected half of the vaquita's distribution from gill netting, which is the thing that is uh, causing the decline, and they wanted to be able to monitor recovery. So we designed the monitoring scheme to be able to detect a 4% per year increase, um, and in the first three years, we were getting an 18.5% decline. And 
so that was a pretty big surprise, you know. I mean, I know you probably hear about, rather hear about cool biology, but but in fact, you know, that was the most surprising thing. And and we knew that this uh, illegal fishery for totuaba, which is a, a fish that's about the same size of, as vaquita, also listed as endangered, both under... Mexican law, U.S. law, and under CITES, which is the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. And the big fish started to recover, and its swim bladder is worth an absolute fortune in China. And so we we knew that this was happening, but we didn't know, have any idea the extent of this illegal fishery because by its very nature, it's secretive. And so unless we had had this monitoring thing in place, we wouldn't have known that, you know, rather than recovering or slowly declining as they had been in the past, that they were rocketing towards extinction. And so that, that was the big surprise. We also learned some interesting biology uh, along the way, but it's sort of been overshadowed by um, by this big decline. For example, um, they live in a very small area. Um, it's a little bit bigger than uh, the footprint of Los Angeles, the, the entire range of the species. But in fact, they use an even smaller area than that. They're very picky about their habitat. Most of those sea uh, pods of the, the grid of 50 out there, you know, well over half of them, there are never any vaquita there at all. And that they spend most of their time in a few places and that they actually move even within the few months that we monitor in the summertime, they they switch areas. So they're they're clearly focusing on a few prey species that are found in a few areas, and even that changes a little bit from sea, you know, from month to month. So they're they're sort of the the animal that you would pick as a poster child for vulnerability to fisheries because they're they're clearly uh, honing in on the most productive fishery areas, which of course are the place where if you're a fisherman, you're going to put your net. Yeah, that that really is fascinating. You know, I, I had no idea that that there there this knowledge about sort of the the rate of decline of the species was was a big unknown before this acoustic monitoring program was set up. So my, my next question is, I, I guess I'm wondering if there are any sort of burning research questions out there in regards to the vaquita. Um, I mean, is there is there research that you feel like still needs to be done in order to help save the vaquita? Or is this issue as simple as, you know, stop the use of gill nets um, and, and we save them? I mean, could there potentially be other sort of environmental factors impacting the vaquita? Um, so I, I guess my question is, is, is more research needed before we can really save the species? Yes, but interestingly, it's not so much research on vaquita as it is research on fishing. So vaquita are fairly unique in the range of marine mammal conservation issues that I deal with in that most of them have multiple threats. Vaquita seem to have really this one threat. I mean, we have never seen a skinny vaquita. When we see vaquita, they're nice, fat, happy animals. They're, uh, they have calves. You know, there's no reason for us to believe that if you stopped killing them, the population wouldn't recover. So the real question is, how can you catch the fish without catching the vaquita? And it's an amazingly productive area. And I think the main research thrust needs to be on developing alternative fishing gear so that you can catch fish and not catch vaquita. And there has been some work done. There are alternatives for catching shrimp, um, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on finfish. And there, there actually is remarkably little uh, good research and and uh, solid management science that has been done with the uh, fisheries uh, populations themselves. And, you know, so anything that you can do to help those communities uh, fish in ways that are more 
profitable and sustainable to those communities, the better it's going to be for Vaquita. So they're they're intimately connected with one another. So you sort of touched on this uh, more recent genetic. Are we going to face problems resulting from low genetic diversity? You know, if we solve this problem with the with um, gillnet fishing, um, I mean, are, are are you worried about this issue of genetic diversity down the road? Well, I'll tell you, I'm worried about a lot of things. Um, I, I would I would not say that I'm not worried about that, but it, it's relatively low on my list of things to worry about for Vaquita. Um, I have much, much things that rate rank much higher in my worry list. So we have a number of interesting examples of populations um, that have gone down to even lower numbers than where we think Bakita are now. For example, one of the shining examples of successful recovery is the northern elephant seal, which only persisted on Guadalupe Island in Mexico. There were probably 30-ish individuals that uh, survived the uh, human hunt that that happened at the end of last, well, I guess two centuries ago now. But uh, now there are hundreds of thousands of northern elephant seal. And by the way, they also don't show variability in the genetic marker that I was talking about that we've looked at in Vaquita. And clearly they're doing just fine. And that was a population that I would have given a lower chance for being able to go what through what geneticists call a bottleneck. So originally there were hundreds of thousands of elephant seals. They were hunted down to, uh, as I say, 30 or so individuals. And when that happens, um, the thing that geneticists worry about is that most of us that live in large populations carry a few what we call lethal recessives. And if you uh, are, you know, marry someone who's distantly related to you, the chances of getting two copies of something that is lethal and rare is virtually zero. But if all of a sudden you're down to 30 individuals, then you start seeing those bad genes exposed, even though they're rare. They are no longer rare because, you know, you only have 30 individuals. So that's something that has been shown and is called inbreeding depression. And it's been shown in many populations. And it's something that I certainly would have been worried about if I was a northern elephant seal biologist 120 years ago. But they pulled through. And there's quite a lot of examples that are like that, where the populations, even though they probably weren't recovering at the rate they would have. You probably did have some genetic effects. They still pulled through and recovered just fine. Vaquitas are really interesting, and this is what some of my original research was about with Lorenzo, was we looked at, you know, what would it take to basically not have any genetic variability left in this particular marker. If it had been a big population that had been taken down to what we thought it was about then, about 600 individuals, would you expect to find no genetic variability? And the answer was no, um, that you would expect to find some. If, if fishing was what had taken it down and it came down from a large population. So the conclusion was that these guys have probably all, all always been, you know, in the low thousands, which is consistent with their not having been described by earlier discoverers in the Sea of Cortez, and you know, you know, basically having a description of the species in 1958 by you know a scientist who found some skulls on the beach. You know that this is a species that there have never been very many of, and that makes them in some senses, more robust to, you know, the idea that they would be carrying around a big genetic load. Of course, you never really know until it happens. It's always sort of a random thing, which genes make it through and which genes don't. But 
as I say, of all the things that I'm worried about, that one isn't very high in my list. I'm I'm much more worried about the illegal Totoaba fishery and the difficulties of pulling off enforcement and, you know, finding good livelihood for the fishermen and creating good market lines than I am about the vaquita's genetic issues. So how do you collect genetic information from a vaquita if they're they're so elusive and uh, uh, so hard to sort of come into close contact with? Uh, 100% of what is in our genetics collection here um, come from animals that were killed in fishing nets. So it comes from dead animals. We've never gotten any um, tissues from live animals. We have a spectacular collection here um, at my laboratory. We have about 80,000 samples from uh, different marine mammals from all over the world. And most of those we collect from wild animals um, using uh, biopsy darts to be able to collect the tissue and take it and put it in the freezer. But that's just not a possibility with vaquitas. Um, What we are thinking about experimentally doing um, when we're out there this fall doing another survey um, is collecting some water samples. We're sort of right on the edge of being able to do what they call eDNA now, um, where you uh, take a water sample, you highly filter it and you're able to get uh, uh, environmental DNA out of the water sample. And uh, so, you know, if we get some opportunities to uh, be able to take water right from the little footprint that's left behind where uh, a vaquita surfaces, um, we'll, we'll certainly take advantage of doing that. But I have to say the technology isn't quite there yet. We're close, but we're not quite there. So you can tell what species it is, which is, of course, we know what species it is, so that's not very helpful. But what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to get enough good DNA that you can actually identify individuals. You brought up this issue of the northern elephant seal, which I think is, I, I think it's really important to talk about um, other species that have gone through sort of similar bottlenecks like that and, 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 and survived, right? Um, where, you know, actions were taken um, on, on the part of us, on the part of humanity, right? Um, that have resulted in the recovery of, you know, critically endangered wildlife species um, because because it it seem, the situation seems so dire right now, you know, and it, it it's hard to find that sort of glimmer of hope um, and and really believe that you know uh, we can make a difference in in an issue like this. Um, and you know it's 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 impossible for me to to talk about the vaquita and and this issue of this sort of crisis situation for the species right now um, without thinking about the California condor. Um, is that is the California condor is the topic of my first documentary scavenger hunt. Um, and I, I also spent four years working as a California condor biologist. Um, and you know what, while I was working on, on, on that first film of mine scavenger hunt, um, I, I had the opportunity to interview several of the biologists who were involved in condor recovery efforts, uh, during the 1980s, which is when the species was was going through its its bottleneck, you know, its sort of crisis situation, there were only 22 individual birds remaining on the planet, um, and you know, it, it's it it is it really striking to me, you know, the, these uh, uh, conversations I had with these folks, um, because none of the folks that I talked to, and, and these are biologists who were, you know, uh, uh, actively involved in condo recovery efforts during that time period um and and who these are folks who were these were the advocates you know of condo recovery and of taking these you know what were considered at the time extreme measures to save the species um which was you know uh uh, this this sort of critical decision that was made in the early 80s to, to to go out and try to trap all the remaining birds in the wild and bring them into captivity and start this captive breeding program um, and this, this, but this was, uh, you know, I- extremely controversial at the time. But what was so striking is that, you know, talking to these folks, you know, they, 
they told me that, you know, they were never going to give up, but that at the time, they really did not believe it was going to work. You know, they, they really thought they had a, a very low likelihood chance of bringing the species back from the brink of extinction. Um, and, you know, uh, the, this, this, the desperation of this situ- situation was so palatable. I mean, you know, and, and w- with the condor, I think it was, you know, maybe even more extreme than, than it, you know, the, the current situation with the vaquita, um, because it was this, this very sort of apparent, you know, and very visible species, um, you know, but there was this active campaign and this is some, you know, something that very few people talk about anymore, but, you know, at, at the time in the early eighties, when this crisis situation for the condor was going on, you know, there was this campaign led by the Sierra club, um, arguing in favor of, uh, stepping back and allowing the species to go extinct. Um, and they published articles, they published a book, um, with you know their their slogan um death with dignity this was the catchphrase of this campaign that they ran and the idea was that you know it's inevitable you know the efforts that these biologists are taking aren't going to have any impact um so we should just step back and let this species go extinct as a natural process without human intervention um and i i guess i'm just wondering if i mean if if, if you see any parallels between you know, what, what happened with the condor and, and this controversy um, over, you know, these these efforts that were taken to save them and, and what's going on with the vaquita right now? Yeah, a couple of points there that I think are important things to remember. The, I, I, I do remember very well the whole controversy with with condors and and what a contentious issue it was in the conservation community. And there was a very similar uh, set of papers that were published right before we went out on the Baiji cruise to try to capture the last of the Baiji, saying it's time, you know, one side saying it's time for biologists to get real and just, you know, that it's time to triage and let these, you know, ones that are going to be extremely expensive and have very low chances of recovery, just let them go and concentrate on, you know, more, you know, ones where you have a higher chance of success. And I certainly have heard that repeatedly with Vaquita, and I think we'll hear a lot more of it. Of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I really do believe that if you stop killing them, these animals can recover on their own, that they're in a really healthy environment. And the thing that I think is really an important conservation lesson to keep in mind is that I think I mentioned very early on that there are many, many cases in across the globe where coastal dolphins and porpoises are in pretty dire straits and they face a multitude of issues only one of which is the gill netting it's usually the largest issue but they you know face all sorts of problems with pollutants and ship strikes and uh, bush meat and all sorts of other issues vaquita has this one issue gill nets artisanal gill nets And it's a global issue, and we have no good examples of bringing, of of solving this problem, of coming up with a way for people who need to make their living by fishing, being able to catch fish without driving species extinct. And so if we don't solve this problem here, it's going to be a pervasive problem that's just going to happen over and over and over again. And this is a case, as I say, where this is the problem and Mexico has really stepped up here. I mean, there are lots of issues, but they have put in, they have a recovery team, which I've been on for many years. They put together a vaquita refuge. They did a buyout of in of some of the pongas a number of years ago 
they set up a presidential commission that had, you know, the heads of all of the departments uh, that were actively involved in the issue and had meetings in Mexico City. They were the audience that received the science so that when we came out and said, oh, my gosh, this Totoaba thing is driving the species extinct. And now there was a group that you was there to listen to it. And, and when we said we think there needs to be an emergency closure on gill nets, they listened and they just a few weeks ago put into effect an emergency ban for two years to, with compensation, which is going to cost the government of Mexico $32 million a year, compensating these fishermen not to fish. So, you know, if, if you don't take an example like this and give it your all, then you've not only consigned vaquita to extinction, but you've consigned like many, many, many coastal populations. We're going to live in a very poor planet where, you know, any place where people need to make a living and are pretty poor and do it with gill nets, you're not going to have any coastal dolphins or porpoises. So it, it's something that I feel not only because I'm passionate about Bakita, but because I think, you know, people need to solve this problem and this is the place that they need to do it. So let me ask you this. You, you mentioned this uh, this emergency two-year ban on the use of gill nets uh, within the Vaquitas range that, that has just been been implemented very recently um is is this enough i mean is this going to save the vaquita it's a band-aid it's an absolutely critical band-aid i mean they're they're on the emergency table right now it's unless you unless you take them in and do something right now um you're going to lose them and you know every country has its regulatory machinery and to put a new regulation in place um, to, for example, ban gill nets and allow some alternative gear to be used takes about two years in Mexico um, because you have to go through public hearings and so forth. But they have emergency uh, procedures that can be put in place, but for a maximum of two years. And so they did the maximum that they could do. Um, it took longer than I would have wished. Um, but still they, they did it and they, uh, brought the Navy in and put the Navy in charge, got new high speed enforcement boats in. So all of these things are things that had to happen to keep the patient from expiring, but it certainly is not enough. Um, there has to be a permanent ban. It can't, I mean, you know, if there's a, just as an example, if there were a hundred vaquitas in two years, if they were growing at absolutely at a maximum and the there was absolutely perfect enforcement, you'd have a hundred and eight. You know, it's gonna take a long time for these guys to recover at a growth rate of four percent per year. So it's what we've been saying all along is that gillnets and vaquita are completely incompatible and you have to find a permanent solution. But until you get that permanent solution, um, unless you, you take the emergency steps, there's not going to be anything to save. So it's, it's not dissimilar to the condor where, you know, you had to take the animals into captivity to, to save the species, but it certainly isn't the long-term solution. It's, it's the emergency, you know, it's the emergency room. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, you know, but, but you know, sort of continuing with that comparison between, you know, what happened with California condors, um, you know, it, it, it took quite a long time to figure out, like, at the time when California condors were trapped and brought into captivity to start the captive breeding program for the species, no one knew what was causing the decline. No one knew what had caused, you know, their decline. Just, I mean, people have been studying the condors, you know, uh, pretty intensively since the 1930s. And still, no one, and people had ideas and, and, and sort of guesses, but it was a big question mark. And it remained a question mark until reintroductions began. And folks started to realize that condors were dying of lead poisoning um, and started to investigate like where that lead might be coming from. But 
you know, so, I mean, I guess, I guess my reason for saying that is, you know, the situation with the Condor was such that folks weren't even able to, uh, you know, that, that, that the issue that was driving their decline wasn't even, you know, scientists weren't even able to discover it until they brought all the remaining birds in the wild into captivity, brought the numbers way back, you know, much, much higher, at least much higher than, you know, that low point of 22, and then threw them back out into the wild to see what would happen. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, like, um, is, I mean, is this idea, I mean, do, when, when you guys have these uh, recovery meetings for Vaquita, I mean, is the idea of uh, bringing animals into captivity, is, is, that, is that something that's discussed, or is it just too logistically difficult? Well, our last two recovery team meetings, we have discussed it, especially the one about a year ago, we spent probably a couple of hours discussing it. We had people with the expertise in the room to uh, really address the problem. And the feeling of the team was that, you know, there was, there's a whole bunch of stages that have to happen. First, you have to find them. Then you have to be able to capture them, which with a porpoise is a very difficult thing. It's just been doable in the last couple of years. Some Norwegians figured out a way to capture harbor porpoise, um, but it's you know it's still very going to be extremely difficult to find them and capture them. And then you have to figure out you know how to keep them in a pen and how to feed them. And the the Sea of Cortez is a beautiful but violent place, as Steinbeck noted, and and it, it is would really be an extremely difficult task. And so it's not that we aren't still thinking about it and talking about it and you know not taking it completely off the plate, but the team basically realized that the chances of saving Vaquita by captive means were so small that the best bet still for saving them is to make their natural environment safe for them. So it's it's something that we have to reconsider every single year, but it, it is something that is an extremely low probability of success, unfortunately. So to wrap things up here, um, I, I, I want to talk about uh, ideas for what folks can do, and you know, specifically for folks here in the U.S., um, can can how folks can get involved in vaquita conservation, and and you know, maybe any ideas you have as far as what folks can do to help with the recovery of the species. Well, this has been a question that I get at every talk that I give in a public forum, and I always hate the moment that it happens because until the recent past. The most that you could say to people was, you know, pay attention to, you know, what's going on with Vaquita, you know, write letters, whatever, you know, but there really wasn't any action that people could take. With this two-year ban in place, it's the first time when the fishermen who are progressive and are using alternative means to catch shrimp and fish uh, that are... Uh, Vaquita friendly um, can operate. I mean, they have not been able to operate because there have been so many gillnets in the water that you literally could not man maneuver a small type trawl that's been developed to replace the gillnet gear because the gillnetters would actively set their gillnets in front of you. So those fishermen have been held back in making progress in, in alternative gear. And now you know, we have this golden opportunity to support the alternative gear, and we have an endangered species that is a four-hour drive from where I'm sitting in San Diego right now with a very large market in Southern California that could easily pay a little bit more and consume absolutely everything that came out of that gulf. And I think that, you know, it's the, the U.S. is has been responsible even though unwittingly in you know the decline of vaquita because 80% of the shrimp that is captured in those nets is sold in the United States and uh you know if we are 
conscientious consumers and pay attention to what we eat, we can, you know, insist on there being traceability and, you know, give the rewards to the right people and promote people doing the right thing. And I think that things like that can be really critical at this point in time. The fishermen are resistant to changing their ways of fishing. And I'm not blaming the Mexican fishermen. All fishermen are pretty resistant to change. I mean, if they are making a living and making a profit, doing what they're doing, why change? I mean, they're pretty resistant to changing. And now we have this opportunity where, you know, they're being compensated not to fish, so they don't have to worry about putting food on the table. And you can, you know, really promote these, you know, shortening the market lines, taking some economic um, solutions and providing some carrots along with the sticks. And I think that that if U.S. consumers really want to help, that's the way to do it, to, to work with restaurateurs and buyers and chefs and, and really make us part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Well, that's definitely fantastic to hear. And that's, uh, yeah, sounds like a really amazing uh, opportunity um, to, to, to promote this vaquita-friendly uh, seafood. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering, I mean, is this, at, at what stage in development is, is, um, are, are these projects? And is there anything that folks can do, you know, right now to figure out if the shrimp that they're buying is vaquita safe? Well, that's a really good question. I wish I, I could give you a really good answer. WWF Mexico has developed a vaquita-friendly label. And as I say, it's been, you know, this really awkward situation where they developed the gear, they know the gear works, they know that they can catch the shrimp, they have the the boxes, they have the packers, they have the FDA approval, but they don't have the product because they haven't been uh, able to actually maneuver their boats out there. And so it won't be until next fall when the shrimp season opens um, that any product will actually be available. And so I guess the best things that we can say at this point in time is to, you know, use the web to look for, you know, vaquita friendly shrimp and, you know, look for those products to be showing up next fall when the shrimp season's open. And I think that the the finfish are going to be a little bit further behind. Um, normally the summer is well, blazingly hot in the northern Gulf, and it's the time when the fishermen take a breather and repair their gear and so forth. Of course, now there's a gillnet ban in place, so there won't be anything, I think, coming out this summer, but looking to next fall and into the winter, um, hopefully we can really start promoting those things, and uh, as I say, WWF Mexico has been a real leader in uh, working with these fishermen, and hopefully we'll be able to get some interesting products. There's a few uh, chefs here in San Diego, one that developed this fabulous edible rice barcode that you can actually stick right to the seafood, the shrimp or whatever. You can take a picture of it with your phone and have an app that'll show you the traceability that, you know, this is the fisherman who caught it and here's where he caught it and this is what's going on your plate. So I think that those things are not in the too distant future, um, but they aren't there today. Gotcha. And, and maybe something that, that folks could do uh, in, in the near future is talk to uh, uh, wherever, you know, uh, whoever it is who works at the place where you buy your seafood and, and, and you know, uh, uh, let them know that this is a product that we, we expect to be coming on the market this coming fall and to let them know that, you know, I'm not going to be buying shrimp unless I know that it is Vaquita safe. Yeah, that's an absolutely excellent way to go. And, and, and hopefully it'll be the same with, uh, with finfish. I mean, a lot of the, you know, I went to a restaurant here just the other day and saw, you know, fish that was being sold from the Gulf that was caught with gill nets. And, you know, it's, it's our responsibility as consumers to say, Hey, this, this exciting new thing is happening. And, and I would really like you to support it and be part of the solution. Absolutely. 
Well, thanks a lot, Barbara, for coming on the show and sharing all of this this uh, really important information about vaquita and conservation. I think they're uh, as as dire as the situation for this species is. Um, we've got a lot of sort of glimmers of hope here and uh, uh, things moving in the right direction, it seems like. Um, so there's definitely reason to to be hopeful for the future of the vaquita. And, and uh, thank you very much for, for the work that you've put in to, to help protect this species. Um, and uh, yeah, it was fantastic chatting with you. Great. Very, very nice talking with you too, Matthew. All right. That was our conversation with Dr. Barbara Taylor from the Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Now, before we wrap things up here, I have a little bonus segment to share with everyone. After I stopped recording this interview with Barbara, we continued our conversation and got onto the topic of success stories in marine mammal conservation. It became clear that she had one last story to share about how public opinion towards whales and marine mammals in general has shifted over the past several decades, and how this empowered her to continue with marine mammal conservation early in her career. I switched the call recorder back on to capture this for you. Here it is. So I I had a couple of really positive experiences early in my career that, as I say, are the things that make you an optimist rather than a pessimist as a conservation biologist, which is sort of a a very essential ingredient. Two species that I worked with when I was in my 20s, one was bowhead whales and the other one was humpback whales. I lived in Alaska. I lived about a year of my life living out on the sea ice. um, And Bowhead whales at the time were considered to be highly endangered. Uh, There was a huge amount of pressure on the local hunting communities uh, that were subsisting as they had for uh, many, many thousands of years on bowhead whales um, to stop whaling. And we started monitoring the populations. They controlled, they set up their own Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission They controlled the number of animals that they took. They sponsored the research. Uh, And today there are uh, about 12,000 whales. um, And they're growing at higher rates than ever before. And the amazing thing to me is that uh, both in the case of the bowhead whales and the humpback whales, which are also endangered and have just... Uh, been petitioned to take them off the endangered species list, almost all of the individuals that are out there today were born since I was a young biologist working on them. So, you know, it's it's just a fantastic case of, you know, these things that people thought were hopeless being really um, spectacular examples of recovery and also that, you know, people have learned to love them, that there's more whale watching and appreciation for the animals for what they are now than there was back, you know, not that long ago when they were using whales, humpback whales off of uh, Southern California for dog food. So we've come a long ways and I, I have a lot of faith that people can turn things around. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, there really has been a a very dramatic shift in our our perspective and the, the way we view wildlife and I mean whales specifically but you know I, I think that um, th- that example uh, plays true across a wide variety of wildlife species and um, and, and you're right I mean that that is a, a you know in, in 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 as far as you know in talking in evolutionary terms I mean that is a, a the blink of an eye right and uh, to think that we we're able to have such uh, dramatic, positive impact to really turn these things around for uh for uh these whale species is you're right it's 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 extremely hopeful so thank you for sharing that you bet now as a few of the filmmakers out there listening probably know sometimes the best conversation happens after you've wrapped up the formal interview and stopped recording it's always important to be ready to discreetly press that record button uh, to capture powerful moments like this. Um, of course, in this instance, uh, uh, Barbara actually asked me to to turn that call recorder back on because she really did want to share uh, these experiences that that she had had because she felt like it it gives us hope uh, for the vaquita. 
So that wraps up our conversation with Dr. Barbara Taylor and what a vast resource of knowledge she possesses on the vaquita and marine mammal conservation in general. Uh, her, her emphasis on highlighting these success stories uh, from the past is, is really important. Um, we need to show people that the situation for vaquita is far from hopeless um, and that it is within our power to have an impact on this issue. And if you're looking for a way to get involved yourself, take that suggestion given in the interview and go talk to whoever you buy your seafood from and tell them about the importance of uh, this new Vaquita-friendly brand of seafood. Of course, another easy way to get involved is to make a pledge on our Kickstarter campaign for our new film, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. This helps provide us with the funds needed to tell the Vaquita's story. Um, and a bonus is that you have a wide variety of reward items to select from when you make that pledge, including, as mentioned earlier, limited edition prints of Vaquita art created by today's guest, Barbara Taylor. There are only two of these prints available at the moment on the campaign, so be sure to get in there and make that pledge before they're gone. You can find our campaign by simply searching for Souls of the Vermilion Sea on Kickstarter or by following the link on our show notes page, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC28. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC28. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our special Vaquita theme song was written and recorded by Ben Mirren, and those Vaquita vocalizations in the song were recorded from those special underwater microphones set up as a part of the remote acoustic monitoring program discussed in today's interview. 